We have seen rates rise over the past two years, both as a function of that risk-free rate going up, right? And people saying, hey, I can park my cash in a savings account and get a high four, low five return. So you're gonna have to pay me something above that, right? For the risk that I'm taking on something that is, you know, not guaranteed by the USD. But we've also seen a contraction of supply of capital, I think across, you know, all risk capital, right? You know, those two things combined don't just affect us, but affect the market at large. Cost of capital, not surprisingly for anybody that's investing in real estate has gone up. We like to think that the way we've set our business is we're somewhat agnostic to, to interest rates. What's going on, everybody? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will teach you how to build wealth with real estate without buying yourself another job. As always, I am your host, Taylor Lotes, and today we are joined by Matt Rodak. Matt is the founder and CEO of Upright. He is a debt investor, and he started his platform to help others invest in debt as well. He's got a very successful track record, and today we're going to dig into debt investing versus equity investing, the way debt investors see things compared to equity investors in real estate and everything along those lines. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Taylor. Glad to be here. Really excited to to dig into this topic today. To fill out your background a little bit more, can you tell us about how you got the company started and, and why you started a company to help others invest in debt? Yeah, absolutely. My journey in real estate investing got started at a relatively young age. I had a landscaping business in high school and Ended up doing a lot of work for fix and flip investors. So got to see, you know, kind of these ugly, nasty houses go from ugly and nasty to some of the nicest on the block. And just thought that was really cool in terms of what that was doing for the local neighborhoods and communities. And and these guys were also not shy to tell me how much money they were making. So as a 16-year-old, I was like, oh, that's a that's a pretty cool way to make a living. Kind of always had in the back of my head, you know, this idea of getting into, you know, real estate investing and, and kind of like the lifestyle and the entrepreneurship of it. I'll fast forward a little bit. Graduated from college in 2007, right when the real estate market was kind of doing its first big collapse, I guess, if you will, in a, in a very long time. And had college bills to pay, so took a corporate job and, and did that for seven years. And towards the the middle or tail end of that, I, I really you know wanted to get back into my my passion for real estate investing and started flipping some houses and getting involved in just the local real estate investment community. And through that experience, I learned a couple of things. The first was that in order to grow one of these businesses, you needed access to reliable and, and stable capital and a lot of it. And banks weren't really a very good option for for the fix and flipper, if you will. And I would argue still aren't aren't today. And, and kind of concurrently along that same timeline, I started to do some alternative investing in, in peer-to-peer lending platforms, the lending clubs, the prospers, where you could effectively buy uh, consumer credit, unsecured consumer credit, and really small dollar amounts, like $50. So I had these two experiences of flipping houses and borrowing money to flip houses. And I had this experience of investing in alternative debt products. And the ideas kind of came together and said, wouldn't it be cool if we could create a platform that helped the experienced real estate investor access the capital they needed to grow their businesses and and renovate more homes, while at the same time creating uh, a new way for someone that, I love your tagline, by the way, for this podcast, invest in these and this very interesting asset class without having to do it as a full-time job, right? So that was the genesis for what was first known as Fund That Flip, and we recently rebranded as Upright. But that's what we do today, right? So we have one side of our marketplace where we are working with active investors that are out finding properties, renovating them, and then bringing them to market either as rental properties or for sale units. And we built an entire platform then that allows investors to participate in these underlying debt instruments in a number of different ways. So that's kind of the crux of it. We've done about $3 billion of, of, of lending since going all the way back to 2014. We've got about a 100-person company, primarily located in Cleveland, Ohio, and across the rest of really the globe at this point. 
And that's still primarily what our focus is, right? Is find good good people all over the country that are, are improving their communities and create access to those investments through a number of different products we've created over the years to, to the individual more passive investor, if you will. Great. I think a lot of folks, when they get into real estate investing, myself included, start from an equity investing standpoint, buying a property, putting money down, going and getting debt from someone else and being an equity investor yourself rather than being in the debt slash lending position. And I wanted to start really here with the first principles of debt investing versus equity investing and why someone would generally prefer, for those who prefer to be debt investors, why they would prefer to be debt investors as opposed to equity investors. What drives them generally to want to be debt investors? There's there's perhaps two different vectors to kind of approach it at. I think the first that maybe I'll just hit on on, on briefly is call it level of effort or level of involvement that you and when I got started is required if you're going to be an owner, right, or an operator and really take both the equity in terms of your real dollars, but also often your sweat equity, right? I think if if you're going to be kind of in the the equity capital stack as an operator, there's a certain, I think, realization that it's a job, right, in some ways, and it's a, or it's a business, right? It needs to be treated as such, which requires a certain amount of time, a certain amount of effort, a certain amount of knowledge and understanding and, and network, right, to, to, I think, make that investment truly successful. You know, there's also passive ways to invest in equity, which is through, right, more of like a, a limited partnership agreement, right? And if I focus on that one a little bit, right, I think the main difference between debt and equity is really the risk and return profile, right? So as an equity investor, you're the you're the first money that gets lost, right? If a deal doesn't go as as well as it's expected to, or you know, unforeseen thing comes up, so that money is the most exposed, and as a result of that, should demand a higher return on investment. Whereas with debt, there's almost always some amount of equity, right? That's kind of in that first loss position in the debt capital stack, and depending on what your I'll use a term here, loan to value is, is how much cushion you have between you know, where that equity is going to absorb kind of that first loss before there's any exposure to your invested capital as a debt investor to potential loss. For example, our our investments, our debt investments typically will have a loan to value ratio anywhere between 80 and 65%, which means there's a 35 to 20% cushion where there'd have to be that much loss on the underlying value of the property before the first dollar of that debt would get impacted. As a result of that, there's typically a lower return, right, in the debt stack relative to what you can get as equity because you're taking a little bit less less risk and your your return your return is a little bit more certain in the sense that there's got to be a, a, a fair amount of of loss in front of you before your before your principal is at risk of being returned, if you will. Okay. So when it comes to debt lending and, and interest rates generally there've obviously been a lot of changes in rates over the last nearly 2 years now rates have gone up pretty significantly and you started your company nearly 10 years ago when we were in a different economic environment but throughout most of that period we've had pretty cheap interest rates in the recent 2 years as rates have gone up have you seen big changes in what borrowers are willing to pay has there been uh, a pressure in any particular direction on the rates that you're able to charge folks that are borrowing? I mean, what impacts have you seen as a result of rates changing so much? 
Yeah, I mean, I think what we've seen in our space is r- rates are both a function of call it the risk-free rate, right? Which is which is kind of the the number that gets gets in some way set by the the Federal Reserve. The other thing that we've we've seen over the years, so when, when we started the company, we were charging 12, 13, 14% for, you know, for our loans. Those rates came down to to a to a, a greater extent than just the the compression of the risk-free rate. And one reason for that was this asset class over the years has started to get a little bit more institutionalized. And what I mean by that is there's there's more banks or more uh, securitizations or more, call it big money type investors that have, have realized what we realized a long time ago, which is this is a very attractive asset class. Um, so it's a, it's a function both, I think, of, to answer your question, a function both of what is that risk-free rate, right? And what's the premium over that risk-free rate that investors are expecting for a fair risk-adjusted return? And there's also another component to that, which is just the supply of capital, right? So how much supply is competing for a limited amount of demand, right, for this product? So to answer your question more directly, we have seen rates rise over the past two years, both as a function of that risk-free rate going up, right? And people saying, hey, I can park my cash in a savings account and get a high four, low five return. So you're gonna have to pay me something above that, right, for the risk that I'm taking on something that is, you know, not guaranteed by the USD. But we've also seen a contraction of supply of capital, I think, across, you know, all risk capital, right? You know, those two things combined don't just affect us, but affect the market at large, right? Cost of capital, not surprisingly for anybody that's investing in real estate, has gone up. We like to think that the way we've set our business is we're somewhat agnostic to, to interest rates, right? Because the, the market sets that in terms of what a borrower should expect to pay. And so long as we can be competitive on some combination of price, terms, and service, there's there's still a very large pie and an opportunity for us to, to put money out on the streets. I will say what's nice about our investments for investors is they're short duration, right? So they're typically six, nine, 12 month loans. So as there are changes in interest rates up or down, there's obviously a little bit of lag in terms of when you've invested and when that loan was originated. But we've seen you know our investors be able to kind of uh, get a risk adjusted return that's we believe is commensurate with you know what the rest of the market uh, offers them as a function of these things are, are relatively short term, right? So if you invested, say, three years ago and our interest rates were really low and an 8% note, you likely got that note paid off in nine or 12 months. And now if interest rates are 10 or 11%, you get to redeploy that capital into a 10 or 11% loan versus getting kind of stuck into a an investment that may have a longer period time, hold period, right, at a, at a particular point in time, depending on what those what those rates are. So let's talk about the borrower side of things and the the, the project side of things that you're lending on. What are you looking at today? And also, how has that changed over time? Because digging a little bit deeper into that question, in my area and with the flippers that I know, those projects have changed in shape over the years. You could look at it in a a 10-year span. Things just look different now in the flipping world than they did right in the somewhat immediate wake of the Great Recession. So tell us a bit about your borrowers and what types of projects you're lending on today and maybe how that's changed over time, if it has. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I think in a lot of ways, you know, our our core principles in terms of how we underwrite have been largely the same since the beginning of time. And the, the first the first bit of that is we we look at the the sponsor, the operator first, right? So we are a platform for experienced folks. We like to look at and, 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 and verify that people that we're lending money to have done this before, right? So if you're doing a fix and flip, we like to see at least a couple of successfully exited, exited projects. 
We also do a fair amount of, and this gets to your second part of your question, we do a fair amount of new construction financing now on single family assets as well. So similarly, right, like if we're financing a new construction build for someone, we like to see that they've gone through that process before. To us, that's the best indicator that, um, right, you know how to buy right, you know how to manage the project right, you know how to get out of the project right. We kind of lean into that that prior experience. We're also looking at credit, liquidity, and background checks and, you know, all the things that you would, you would expect just as, I think, good, prudent underwriting. And, and more so, we are, you know, once we kind of get through that, that's a relatively straightforward exercise to, to verify. We spend a lot more time looking through to the asset, right? So ulti- ultimately, at the end of the day, our, our loan is collateralized and secured by a property. And we want to make sure that the value of that property, you know, where we're putting our attachment point from that debt perspective is going to be, to our earlier conversation, well protected with enough cushion there, right? So we're for a fix and flip project, we're looking at, okay, what's this house worth today? Would they pay for it? If we had to sell it in its current condition, what do we think we could get? And then how do we want to attach, you know, our debt, right, to that value? And then we're also looking at, all right, what do we think it's, it could be worth, right, if it's if it's renovated to the highest and best use based on that neighborhood? And then we're also spending a fair amount of time of, do we think they have the right plan, right, to take it from what it is today to what the highest and best use is and making sure that it's not being underbuilt or sometimes overbuilt, right, for for what, you know, the market can bear in that, in that particular uh, MSA or neighborhood or whatever the case may be, right? So, uh, our team spends a lot of time, you know, trying to understand the value of the property, the business plan that's going to go into that property, then making sure we've structured our loan appropriately to to maintain a certain level of of protection for our, you know, for our debt investors. As far as with change, I mean, yeah, I mean, if you go back into the time machine in 2013, 14, 15, kind of when we were getting started, uh, there was still a fair amount of inventory coming coming out of, you know, the great financial crisis on through foreclosures and short sales and non-performing loans and re-performing loans, right? I think the system was still dealing with kind of an oversupply of housing that needed some TLC and probably had been undercared for for some amount of time, right? If you go back to kind of when the whole thing started in 2007, 2008, 2009, uh, it takes a good amount of time to work a lot of this stuff out, right? So some of these properties were uh, not cared for for a very long time. Um, so there was a ton of inventory Um coming off the courthouse steps, right? Or just other kind of distress type sale sales. Um, I would say for the last three or four years, really, that inventory is largely non-existent, right? There's still, you know, death and disease and divorce and these other type of distressed sales that happen as a as a as ordinary course of I think just the housing cycle. But if you look at the data, it's historical lows around foreclosures and kind of true distressed sales. So we've seen a lot of our our customer, you know, adjust to that strategy over the years where they've got to really look at a property and, and make more of a determination on is it highest and best use for this neighborhood, right? So sometimes that's knock the house down and build a new house, right? Because it's a three bed, two bath in Charlotte, North Carolina, for example, where, you know, they're, they're large enough lots where a, a bigger home can, can be built and the types of people that are living there now, that's what they require. Uh, or, you know, like I said, a lot of our, our business over the years has transitioned to new construction, which is just a function of, we still believe we're, we're pretty undersupplied as a country in uh, single family housing, particularly for kind of that first time home buyer or first time move up buyer. We're seeing a, a fair amount of our, our customers over the years graduate, uh, if you will, from fix and flipping into whether that be infill development or, you know, working with, you know, perhaps larger home builders to take down a certain number of lots to build, you know, more perhaps custom product on on parts of parts of land that are getting developed. Okay, so a couple of times you've mentioned MSA market neighborhood the local like economic 
ability or, or desire for new housing in the, the context of new development, right? So for, for your purposes and your company, how much do you dig into the local market or the MSA, the neighborhood, the geography, and the unmet demand for new housing, especially from the lender standpoint? And what I mean by that is, so in the run-up to the Great Recession, there was a lot of new development happening in areas that didn't necessarily need it. I mean, I know some folks who did new development in some oil fields in the Dakotas that great people there, great people living in the area, but not a super high and durable demand for new housing, especially when the price of oil crashed and you know that, that drilling went away and everything. So from that standpoint, how do you analyze the market, the neighborhood, the MSA, whatever geographic standpoint to make sure there's demand for that new construction housing to make sure your loan is well insulated from downside effects and that kind of a thing. Yeah, I mean, I think I'll give you kind of the the forty thousand foot view in terms of what our our general heuristic is, right? So the first is where 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 are people moving to and where are jobs being created, right? And like that data is relatively easy to come across at just a macro level, right? So you've got a lot of people moving south to southeast, southwest for for a lot of different reasons, whether it's cost of living or jobs or whatever their you know warmer weather, right? There's a lot of different reasons that people are are kind of heading that direction. That's one of our first kind of heuristics, right? Of like, just where are the people going and where are the jobs being created? And those are the markets that we generally kind of want to make sure that we've got a representation in and, and right, we're building our brand and our company in, in those kind of macro, the macro level markets. The other one is where do we think there's a very mature set of, of industry that maybe there's less people moving to, but there's a very supply constrained, there's real supply constraints around housing. So like Boston's a good example of that. Philadelphia is a good example of that. Pittsburgh's a good example of that, where they've got older infrastructure that's largely built out, right? There's not a lot of land in any of those markets to build new product, but they've all, they all benefit from relatively strong economies that are, are also relatively well diversified, right? If you look at Boston as an example, you got a startup ecosystem up there. You've got large financial services. You've got healthcare. You've got biotech. Right. So it's an interesting market where it's maybe not benefiting from a ton of people moving there, but there's a lot of old housing stock that we think is going to, that needs to be renovated with a very strong kind of, you know, underlying economic kind of foundation, if you will. So those are kind of the two different kind of, you know, pendulums we, we look at when we're kind of de- determining high level markets that we, we like to operate in. As far as like at the like MSA and neighborhood and like what side of the street to be on or what side of the railroad tracks to be on. It's one of the reasons why we like to partner with experienced people, right? Uh, more likely than not, that local operator is going to have a better perspective on that market than we're ever going to be able to develop because they're talking to the local politicians, they're understanding kind of traffic patterns, right? They're doing all the things. They, they know the new companies that are coming in and building and making new investments. We learn a lot and develop a lot of our investment thesis, if you will, on a on an MSA and even neighborhood by neighborhood perspective by making sure we have really good relationships with our operators and people that we lend money to and uh, listening to their stories, obviously verifying it and say, hey, does this, does this story make sense? Like, okay, yeah, let's lean in here. These guys seem to be kind of on the early edge of maybe gentrifying a neighborhood or what have you. And and we understand kind of what that means in terms of the comps we're going to find and whatnot. But again, do, do we have a track record that we can lean into of this person uh, having done this before? And if so, it's something that we can we can lean into and make a we think a, a an interesting case for you know why we why we want to deploy some capital there. Great. So a lot of a lot of uh, things to look at in that regard. So 
before we go to the three questions I ask every guest on the show, your company's been around for nearly 10 years now. I'm sure you can look back and learn a lot, a lot of lessons from positive and negative moves we've you've made. I mean, that's just kind of the nature of doing business. We have good things we did and bad things we did in the past, but a lot of lessons learned. But looking forward for the next 10 years, we're in 2024, but think about 2034. What is going to change? What do you think? What do you expect for your company and yourself for the next 10 years? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a very a very long tailwind that's that's probably blowing a little bit softer now, but I think we'll continue to 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 blow around single family housing. We think both from a demographics perspective in terms of people living longer, people renting longer, people starting families a little bit later, paying down college debt, and just looking at kind of the millennial generation and the generation behind them that are still primarily renters. We think there's a very long tail positive demographic story for single family housing. And we think that it's uh, increasingly difficult to bring that product to market, both as a function of there's less dirt available. It's harder to build with governments and permitting and finding labor and cost of materials and all of that stuff, right? So we're very bullish long-term on single family, both as a function of the demand we think is going to continue to be there for a very long time. And the supply is somewhat constrained by all of these external factors that make building single family houses uh, really hard, right? So we think that bodes well for both, you know, the fix and flipper that is taking this old inventory and repurposing it, right, for, for into modern homes that the modern home buyer wants to, to move into and, and, and purchase. We think it's also good for fixed to renters, right, that are, you know, buying homes and fixing them up and making them uh, available for rent as people will still need to rent and will eventually grow out of their two-bedroom class A apartments and want something with a little bit more space as their families grow. And we think that's good for, for particularly local builders, right, that have perspectives on their markets and what types of products to build and actually creating that net new inventory for that, you know, for that demand that's going to be there, we think, for a very long time. We think there's going to certainly probably be a couple more bumps in the road as we've experienced over the past couple of years in terms of making sure that demand can actually find a product that it can afford, both as a function of the price of the home as well as the cost of the money. But the the demand's not, it's not going anywhere, right? It's just, it's just biding its time. And, you know, we plan on, on being there to help, you know, the investors in that space bring that, bring that product to market best they can. Nice. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Matt, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Do it. Great. First one, what is your number one book recommendation? Yeah, that's always a tough one for me. But you know, one of the very first kind of business books I read, going all the way back to college, I think, you know, I think my dad recommended it, was the Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. So I think that one's just stuck with me for, for a long time, I think. Influencing people, I think, is such an important skill, whether you're actually in sales or you're building a business or you're doing real estate investment. And just found a lot of those lessons have stuck with me over the over the years on just how to connect with people and you know explain 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 points of view that move people towards a direction that you think is best for for them and yourself and hopefully the world. <laughs> Great recommendation. Question number two: Who or what inspires you? Yeah, so this is a newer one for me. I have a I have a two year old and a four month old now. I think if you had asked me this a couple of years ago, I would have had a different answer for you. But it's definitely my boys now, right? I think becoming a father over the past couple of years has changed my perspective on on the world in a in a very good way. But just seeing kind of how they live, seeing how they experience the world through their eyes has been a really cool thing. And someone I heard somewhere 
from someone somewhere saying your your true objective kind of in life is to make your kids proud of you, not your parents, not your friends, not anyone else, but make your kids proud of you. And that's, that's really stuck with me. That's kind of kind of what get, keeps me going, I think, on a many a sleepless nights with little ones particularly. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Question number three, think about Matt at 80 years old. What advice would 80-year-old Matt give to Matt of today? Yeah, I think you'd probably tell me protect your time, right? So I think another, I don't have any original thoughts, I guess is what I'm, I'm leading on to, but someone told me this too, is like, it's always, you can always figure out a way to make more money. No one's figured out how to make more time yet. I think this is another thing that that's really come into focus for me, particularly with little ones, is really making sure that you're spending your time on things that you care about and that are important beyond just, you know, the hustle and bustle of, of the day to day, something I'm still working on, but making sure every, every passing minute is uh, spent on something that is productive and enjoyable. <laughs> nice. Nice. I like that. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing this knowledge about your debt investing model. If folks want to reach out, get in touch or find your company, where can they track you down? Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn pretty regularly, Matt Rodak, R-O-D-A-K, and then my email is matt at upright.us, and welcome to check out uh, the platform upright.us as well. Great. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate that so much, you guys. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one.